0: but discomfort brings growth, and oftentimes, tragedy brings joy. So, tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes, and join me as we begin our 1,000 Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here. Welcome to a 1,000 Tiny Steps, episode 10, second episode of season 2. So, season 2 of talking about Molly. Oftentimes, when I complete a podcast and then I have time to process what I've said, I listen to it. I, I rewatch it immediately to make sure it's cohesive and makes sense before I send it for editing. And so in the first episode of Molly, I went through a lot of things and it was actually pretty emotional. And I rewatched it a couple of times and decided that it was okay, that it was suitable. And that was a few days ago. And so I have time today to record episode 10 and I made a list of things I wanted to talk about. And I compared it against my plan that I came up with of my different episodes. And I realized that a lot of what I wanted to talk about in the theme of A Thousand Tiny Steps hadn't been arrived at yet. You know, when I talk about taking my steps backwards, motherhood for me was never going to happen. I've spoken about that before. And in my last episode, I mentioned that the beginning of the end of Molly was having Gracie because I had Molly for Gracie. Without Gracie, there would have been no Molly. But I realized without Gordy, there would have been no Gracie. And so who's Gordy, you ask? Well, Gordy is a sweet little baby boy who spent 25 25 weeks of his life in my tummy. And that was it. That was his life here on earth in a body, 25 weeks in my belly. Molly, I had for 13 years in one month and a couple of hours into the next day. Very, very different, very, very different experience. So I have two child loss experiences. When I'm on my Facebook groups and my online support groups and, and my in person support groups, I always listen closely to those whose only loss is the loss of a child in utero. There are so many mothers that never get to have the baby. They have maybe several losses that are all in the tummy and they're so utterly devastating. And and at the time that I lost that baby, I was utterly devastated. I often say that losing Molly was far worse. and, And of course it is because I had 13 years to get to know her. It was a much more realistic in my life every day. Everyone else met her, lots of people knew her, that sort of thing. Are those women in less pain than me? Absolutely not, absolutely not. The child loss is horrific. Regardless of when it happens, we have such good medical technology now to know that we're pregnant before we've even missed a period, that we have a lot longer to let pregnancy sit around in our head. But lots and lots of women back in the day before these early pregnancy tests, you know, you had a blood test at the doctor's office and typically you didn't go until you were missing your second period. You missed a period. Oh, maybe it's late. Maybe, oh, here it, maybe I'll get one next. And, you know, it's just different now. We, we know we're pregnant within days of conception, which is a wonderful thing, but a blessing and a curse. So. I was never going to have kids ever, and maybe Gordy was a very unplanned experience. So to truly tell the story of Molly even arriving on the planet and to give a very, very thorough sharing of my experience with child loss, I I can't can't ignore baby Gordy. He had to go first because he was here first. And so I'll tell that story, and that's this episode will focus on what it was like to lose that baby and all all the circumstances that went into his arrival and his departure and what I learned and, and garnered from that. So it's 1999. I live in a cute little brick house on Alban Street in Connor. Kenny and I are together. He has an apartment. He spent some of his time there and some of his time in the house, most of his time in the house that we basically lived together at that time. We were both dismantling our first marriages. I believe I was actually divorced by this time. He was not. And we were, you know, just enjoying living together. I was teaching and coaching and he was running his business. We were very, very busy. Weekends were often for him spent with his kids, doing things with them, which, which was a good thing. I was timing road races or at track meets or cross country meets. So we had a very, very, very busy life. Nowhere in this life at this time was there talk of children. We hadn't even talked about marriage yet. We were still very much living in the moment. So it's March and I have some day surgery on my foot and I'm sent home. And I get sick. I get like a bronchitis, a cold. And I have asthma, so I got very sick. And I went on some antibiotics. So at this time, I was on the pill. I was on the pill for most of my adult life. That was my chosen method of birth control. And I was not a health educator yet. I was still an elementary school special ed teacher. I hadn't taken the tests and taken the classes to get certified by the state of New Hampshire to teach health education. So what I did not know is that oftentimes antibiotics negate the effectiveness of birth control pills. That's a pretty big thing that probably I should have known. So that's my PSA for now. (laughs) If you're on the pill and you get sick, use after protection because it negates the effect. So it's the end of March. Unknown to me at that time, I created a baby. In the month of April, every year, the month of April, weirdly, since I had Gracie and Molly in April, was my month to go off the pill. I went off the pill every April 1st, went back on it, or or whenever my pill cycle ended, went on it at the end. So this particular year, it was you know, right at the month of April. So I went off the pill. So now I have, I'm not on any birth control, but I, so I was meticulously careful at this time. The end of April comes and I get a massive period, a very, very heavy, typical, crampy, bloody period. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I work, I still get my period. I went back on the pill in the beginning of May. So all of May and all of June, I'm on the pill. Now keep in mind, I don't know I'm pregnant. So a cold beer at night, a cocktail at dinner, you know, I didn't have any reason to think I was pregnant. So May goes along. And what I noticed in the month of May, so keeping in mind that I've six weeks pregnant by the end of April and not knowing it, May is seven, eight, nine, 10. Now I'm at 10 weeks. And then June is 11, 12, 13, 14. So that's the first trimester of a pregnancy. Nowadays, those weeks take forever. You've been pregnant for a long time by the time we 14 rolls around. I had no idea I was pregnant and I didn't have any reason to think anything was different with me. Until the beginning of June, and I was running a lot then. And so when you're running, you wear sports bras and little running shorts and things. And I just started to notice that nothing was fitting me right. Like I felt my tummy was bloaty and I felt gassy and and I was actually really sort of bitchy and emotional. Like I couldn't wrap my head around what was wrong with me. i like, ah, I you can't know, stand how I feel. And I was getting boobs, and I'm not a big boob girl. So all of this was like, what is going on with me? Still never once thinking I was pregnant. I was coming up from a road race one day and <laughs> I had my first cell phone and Back then, you had to use them in the car. That's the only place they worked. Plugged it into the cigarette lighter. They were called car phones. Actually, some cars actually were made with the phone in them, which is funny because we can't use them in cars anymore. (laughs) So I was in my car coming home from a race, and I was talking to Kenny, and I was just we were disagreeing about something. And he was really frustrated with me. And he goes, I just don't know what's gotten into you. And for some reason, at that time, I'm in the car, and I hang up the, the call, and I'm just upset, and I'm looking at my tummy as I drive, and I'm just irritated. And I'm, and I have like a sports bra on and a, like a singlet. And I see the, this ample bosom for me. And I'm just looking at myself and still, I don't think I'm pregnant, but I can't get that what's gotten into you phrase out of my head. I go to sleep, wake up at about four in the morning and it's a Monday now. And you know what? So it's summer vacation. So there's no school. I just, I'm, why did I wake up like with a start and I'm lying on my stomach and I feel, I feel something in my stomach. Like, I feel like I'm lying on my fist. I'm like, what the heck? And then I just knew, like I just knew, I instantly knew. So I leapt from the bed and I ran into the bathroom, this teeny little bathroom we had, and it had like a little, like a shutter door. <laughs> I had a pregnancy test in the medicine cabinet. Most women do. I was so relieved that I had one because that early in the morning, I would have had to pace around. So I peed on the stick. And any of you that have ever done the pee on the stick pregnancy test, you know that typically you, you look at it because you're not supposed to, but you do. And the urine goes down, you see it get wet and the test stripe comes out. So x's check marks words whatever it is the whatever the non-pregnant one is comes up right away you know the, just the, the neutral one and, and when it's all done if nothing else happens then you're not pregnant if you are pregnant something else shows up so normally this takes can take from you know 15 to 20 seconds for anything to really show for a couple of minutes well <laughs> the urine didn't even have to touch the spot when that stripe exploded it, it was it was not only are you pregnant, you're unbelievably ridiculously pregnant. And I stared at it for quite a while. So I went back to the bedroom and I woke up Kenny and I said, Kenny, I have to tell you something. I'm pregnant. And I showed him the pregnancy test. So keep in mind, our marriage is, mine is just over, his isn't over. It's not, it's only, you know, almost a year that we've truly been together, like publicly and such. And I'm pregnant. And this was nowhere in our plans, not at all. His three children were middle school age at that time. The last thing they would have needed at that time was a sibling in a scandalous situation and conquered a small town. And these are the things that flooded my mind how much this was gonna hurt his kids. And I didn't even know I was pregnant for 14 weeks. It was just one of those really crazy realizations. So in those first moments of us knowing we got out with coffee, we sat down. Then I'm thinking, should I be drinking the coffee? You know, like all, all these things going through my mind and we just sat there and pondered it. So I called my OBGYN and I went in that day and had a blood test and another urine test there. And he set up an ultrasound for me. And he did measurements and all this. And so when the blood results came back, he said, based on the numbers, based on the hormone numbers in your blood, I would say you're in your third month. And I'm like third month. So based on my measurements, like my tummy, what my uterus felt like, and you know, he's been in the business for a long time and the the blood levels, he guessed I was between 12 and 14. So think about that. All of you who live in this day and age where you pee on a stick before you even late for your period, by the time 14 weeks of pregnancy rolls around, you've been pregnant forever. Everybody knows, well, maybe everybody doesn't know, but a lot of people know, you know, this is a secret you've been keeping. And I was living life completely oblivious. So Kenny and I are just sort of stunned. So I was 36, which was considered old. And because I was of advanced age, I had to have it. I had the option of having an and they don't even have to do those now. They can do all this with blood work, but it's a big needle in your belly and they extract some amniotic fluid and they can tell what gender your baby will be. And they can tell if there's any, any sort of chromosomal or genetic abnormalities. Um, and so I had it. And so I went for that appointment and they do that needle part first and then they, they take a long time looking at the baby. So I'd never, I'd never seen a baby ultrasound before and this is my baby. So I'm lying there and I think I'm holding Kenny's hand and the tech is going along and talking about things. We're right here in Concord. She starts to get pretty quiet, and she's just spending a ton of time, ton of time. And she does say things like, "Come on, heart, where are you now? Come on, baby, roll over." And she makes some comments that, you know, sometimes the baby's not cooperative, and I saw that happen with Jack, Jack quite a bit. So, long story short, she leaves and says she's going to get the doctor. And so I'm now a bit nervous. And Doctor Walcott comes back. Doctor Darcy was a track athlete for me, really excellent athlete and gymnast. She's a physician now herself, and so. He he comes back and he stands there and very sort of business-like and apologetically says, we can't see all four chambers of the heart. We're not sure what we're seeing, but we're not seeing what we're supposed to see. We should have a specialist. He gave me a lot of information, which is lost on me now. I was a bit speechless, like what? So he gave me a number to call and said, you know, call this number, you know, let them know and we'll send your records up. So I call the number, I go home right away and call and they give me a, an, an appointment for you know September 20th. And it's July, now it's July, early July. So I have my first meltdown of the pregnancy and say, no, 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 <laughs> no. I need to know now what's wrong with my child. If there's something that can be done for him, I'm not gonna let it fester for two more months. So I called Dr. Walcott back, I called Dr. Walsh back and, and I ended up getting an appointment up in Hanover about a week later. So, I, so now I'm in high risk you know, maternal fetal medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in Hanover. Had a wonderful physician, female OB, and her name is Emily. And she did a bunch of tests. She did mostly ultrasounds and blood work and really high resolution ultrasounds. And she said, okay, something's not ready. He only, this heart only has two chambers. It function effectively outside the body. It really needs four chambers. And it looks like chambers are reversed, meaning that the atrium is on top and the ventricles are on the bottom. And that's how gravity works. The bottom of the heart opens and the blood rushes out. And then it sucks the blood out of the atrium, atrial valve, you know, and then new blood comes in. Like it's a whole process. It's pretty mind boggling actually. Heart's pretty amazing, but everything has to be right. So she said what she was seeing just didn't make sense. And she sent me to a specialist. So this was the triggering moment for me in the birth of baby Gordy, baby Jack, was that I had to have some of these similar tests just because I was of advanced age at this point. So I saw this wonderful doctor Rocker or Heffenrecker or something like that. He had a, he had a funny last name, a very Irish accent. So we saw him and he, and he spent hours looking. And this was my favorite. This ultrasound was the best of times and the worst of times because, you know, the weeks are going by. So now I'm like 20 weeks pregnant. I'm almost, I'm almost halfway. And so now the the ultrasounds are hilarious. And, and, and baby Gordy's in there jumping around. He was sucking his thumb once. Then he reached out and he took his thumb out of his mouth and grabbed his little prod. That's the funniest thing I was, you know, but I'm just looking at this like, oh, there's a little baby in here. Like you know, it was just just heart-wrenching. So this doctor sort of sat with us and said, look, this is what I think. He pulls out a pamphlet (laughs) and it lists all the different little genetic heart defects that babies can have that have no reason for occurring other than that they do. You know, it's not like I inherited something from somebody. They just show up. Who knows why? Like the tumor that killed Molly. You know, while there there are brain tumors in, in my family, none of them are astrocytomas and none of them happen to kids and you know, the one child in my family that had a tumor, it was a completely different kind of tumor. So, you know, there was nothing about this heart defect that had any cause. Of course, by this time, I'm sharing that I stayed on a pill for the first eight weeks of this pregnancy and that I, that I had my period right around the time the heart really forms at six weeks was when I was having my period. You know, did that make it like, as I do with Molly, I took all this, I took on all this blame, all these things that I must have done to damage this baby, you know, and I, and it was just, heart-wrenching, but I'll just never forget the look on his face. He was just trying so hard to help me to be optimistic. And he said, well, let's go have a fetal echocardiogram. So we can really watch the blood flow. This will give us a lot of answers. Off I went. So that was the, the test that I had in Manchester at Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. I had the, the fetal echocardiogram there and he was there as, as far as I recall. So it was a hot, sunny day. Now we're getting into early August and I had on a, you know, a blue shirt that buttoned up. No one, and let me also say, Nobody knew I was pregnant. Uh, at the Billody Road Race, my mother figured it out. She pointed at my stomach, and I remember Cheryl Cochran came up and she said, "Are you pregnant?" And I said, "Why?" And she goes, "You're doing this thing with your tummy where you're touching, you're touching the body, you're touching it in a way that pregnant women touch their bellies, and you, <laughs> you look like you're pregnant." So people were sort of noticing. And when I think back now to Jack's pregnancy, this was about the time that I had to start covering up better. So out uh, came the baggy T-shirts and, and the big running shorts, and you know I stopped hanging out so much with people and going places. We go to the hospital and we have this fetal echo. And so an echocardiogram is, you can see the blood. And when you're out of the body, you can see blue blood and red blood. And the blue blood has no oxygen. The red blood has oxygen. So arteries and veins, and you can see it all very clearly. So it's similar in a fetal echocardiogram. You can really get a clear idea of how the blood is traveling. So what that showed was that the heart was essentially upside down and backwards. So it was upside down, ventricles on top, ventricle, atrium on the bottom, one of each, and then the tr- transposition of the great arteries. So the, two, the pulmonary artery and, and the aorta were <laughs> backwards. So what it meant was that the blood flow through the body, oxygen couldn't be carried through the body with a heart that was set up like this. So in the, in the uterus where oxygen has nothing to do with the heart and the lungs, it's in, it's, you know it's in the blood and the baby's sitting in fluid and not breathing it doesn't matter. You know, it's like a little fish. You know, we used to call him froggy, and it was just like there he was, you know, the frog under the water. But when he was born, if he lived and if he even lasted the pregnancy, he would have he would not have any chance of living unless there was a little perfect newborn-sized heart waiting for him and he could withstand a heart transplant at one hour old. You know, so then out come the questions. Well, there are machines that can keep him alive. Can they just put like a tube in his throat so he has oxygen and but there wasn't even a proper heart to keep beating. Like for a newborn, the things that they could do to keep newborns alive were an impossibility with the way, with the defects in his heart. It was really just nothing. And if there's ever defeat on medical personnel's faces, I think it's when they talk to mothers. It was worse news. Not only you know, were there certain things wrong that we could tell from the ultrasound, but the blood flow and the blood pattern showed an impossibility for a baby outside of the uterus. So I remember walking out of that building, I think it was August 10th, quite honestly, and what to do? Like, what do I do? What do I do? And, and I remember falling to the ground, sitting on the floor in this busy hallway that had glass windows from top to bottom and just like, why, why, why did I get pregnant? Why did this happen? You know, like, well, and I remember a good friend of mine, Cheryl Brassa, she, she and I got pregnant at the exact same time. So her daughter, Jenna is, I always look at Jenna and think, oh, that's how old Gordy would be now. You know, I had to call her and tell her, here's what's wrong. And I remember giving her the news, calling her up and saying, I have a genetically sound baby boy, but he will not live. And and she cried on the phone. She started to cry. I'll never forget it. Some of the littlest things still can make me cry all these years later, but just the sound of her weeping just drove home how horribly sad this was. So now keep in mind too, Kenny and I are not yet married and nobody knows. My mother now knows. I believe I told my friend Polly and I think I told my sister-in-law Kathy, although I'm not sure. These are people that, you know, the same people all these years later that know these things, but no one knew. My biological father knew and my sister Martha. And I remember going to lunch and I was pregnant enough with the shirt I was wearing. <laughs> it was like the last time I could wear that shirt. And I remember my Tom patting my belly saying, that's my grandson in there. And it was just one of those like <clears throat> sudden moments, like one of those realizations that this is for real. It's not some mystery thing in my belly. I went round and round. I had several conversations and appointments with the, the specialists. So if, if we were to deliver the baby, choose to deliver the baby, we had a very limited amount of time to make that decision. Any sort of early induction is considered abortion. And so, you know, there, and there are, at that time, the laws around that, I think it was 25 weeks and then you had to go, there were other states where you could use labor sooner. So I want to be very clear. There's no way that I would have let anyone pull a baby out of me and hurt it. <laughs> that isn't what happened here. What we decided to do was wait as long as we could to give the baby enough time to develop. So if the baby were born alive, we could do what we could to keep him comfortable. And if there was a way to, maybe there was a way to save him and fix him and operate on him and all those things that we wanted to give him as much chance to live if he was able to be born alive. So we waited until the very last possible day and we went to Hanover. That was 36, incredibly difficult, not even 24, incredibly difficult. And when I had Jack and I had to be induced, it was the same thing The you know, they insert the things into your cervix to make the cervix open and dilate. I remember going to the hospital and, you know, you're in the maternity ward, so you hear crying babies and, and, you know, it just seems wrong. And so we went in at night and their thoughts were that I would go into labor, they would induce labor. And so they gave me Pitocin and a bunch of other things. And the contractions started and the contractions continued. And I had incredible contractions. And I would say I had contractions for not even two hours. And then there was no more heartbeat. The immense relief I felt in my heart and I know this sounds backwards and I apologize to those of you who are offended by it, but my big fear was that I was making a mistake and that he was perfectly healthy and fine and he would come out and be fine. I and mean, you hear stories about that, but a perfectly healthy, fine, you know, 25 week old fetus would have, you know, baby in my belly wouldn't have, wouldn't have succumbed to the very minor early contractions, the things that were wrong with him. And there were other things that were found in the autopsy indicated that this was a baby that was not going to be able, likely wouldn't have survived nine months of pregnancy. So I had this wonderful nurse. She was so kind and she was the overnight nurse. So she was my nurse all night. I had a nurse until 11. Then I had the 11 to seven nurse. and Then she was coming back. She was coming back to the early shift. And so she said, well, when I see you in the morning, this will be behind you, hopefully. And we can talk it through and all. And she comes back and I still haven't had the baby. All night long, contractions, contractions, and just no no sort of movement on the baby to indicate that the baby would come out. And so when she came back in the morning, she she was just stunned that 12 hours had gone by and I still hadn't. You know, deliver this little teeny one pound baby. So she sent Kenny off to take a walk and she did some internal manipulations. I'm not quite sure what. And she said, why don't you just cough for me? Just go ahead and cough. And so I coughed and sweet little baby Gordy came out. So she wrapped him all up and put him in my arms. So when Kenny came back from getting a snack, I said, here he is. And he's like, I missed it. And the nurse just said she coughed and out he came. So I, I don't know what her thought process might've been, but I think she thought maybe I was anxious or nervous. So I have to tell you he had one ear wasn't quite right, it wasn't formed, it wasn't even really there. but he was perfect and beautiful and brown. like he wasn't pink. he was blue and purple and then I mean, he was just dark. It just got darker and darker. but I held him and looked at him and kissed him and told him I loved him and thanked him for coming and I apologize that I grew and broken and and then Kenny stood at the window and I dodged in and out I was so tired and Kenny I remember Kenny just holding him there you know, I can't believe I'm crying about this all these years later, but you just looked at him and talked to him and looked at his little feet, looked at his little hands. And, and nobody knew. Nobody knew where we were. We told no one. There was that small handful of people that knew where we were. And so once I was okay, which was relatively quick, they sent us home. And so we made the decision in New Hampshire at the time, if he had been born alive, we would have had to have, you know, involve a funeral home and a burial or some sort of, necess- not necessarily burial, but it all of the legal process would have come into play. But because he was born, born sleeping and born so early, we had the choice with how we wanted to proceed. Do we want to have a funeral home and a funeral? All this and we talked about it in the minimal time. You know, I I found out about baby Gordy June 20th or so and said goodbye to him two months later. It was a very short relationship. And so Kenny and I decided that if we could, was there a way we could donate his body where it would be studied and researched to help? Not only other babies that were already alive, but other babies that were that little. So they could see what it looked like and what might be done or how it might grow and that sort of thing. So we sent his sweet self to Philadelphia Children's Hospital. It's called Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he went there. And so we went home. It's the first time I drove home from Dartmouth without the baby I drove up with. And so we drove home. And I remember getting home and there was a yellow bag, it's in the attic now, on my front steps. And inside was a blue blanket and a little baby toy. (laughs) It was from my mom. Why am I crying? <laughs> anyway, it was just the most touching, touching thing. And we have a little certificate with little prints on it. You know, they're all in a box in my attic. And, it, you know, we've been in the process right now of cleaning our attic. And so I think it's time to take those things out. I will say losing Molly has brought Gordy to the forefront for us. and really, really allowed us to talk about him, which I think is healthy. Because what we did when we went home was we tried to just put our lives back together. I remember deciding that I said I'm going to be as healthy as can be. And I went on this massive health kick. But I wasn't home three days. So we come home and we're, you know, putzing around and you know, I have a drink cause I'm miserable and I haven't had drinks now in a while. And my milk came in and I didn't know or think to ask for a shot. You can get a shot that slows that down. And my boobs went, became engorged. I didn't know what to do. It was horrifying. It was painful. I'd wrap them in ace bandages, I put ice on them. Cause you don't want to encourage, you don't want to encourage milk flow cause it caused you to produce more milk. And so it took about 10 days. For everything to really settle down. And I remember when I went out in public, I'd hug people and they'd be like, dang, what's up with your boobs? You know, it was just, it was, it was one of those things that again, I had to be careful, but it was such a kick in the face, all this milk that I couldn't share with anybody. <laughs> I think if that happened to me now, I'd, I'd just become a wet nurse and punk for people, couldn't have shared it all. But at any rate, those are the things that I remember all this long. So the other piece of the story is the last date that we could possibly do was uh, Bruce Springsteen concert ticket date. And Kenny had never seen Bruce Springsteen in concert. So I had these tickets, and as y'all know, Springsteen concert tickets are hard to come by. So so I went to this place in Manchester, like a Ticketmaster type place, an and office. And this kind gentleman heard my story, and he said, well, where are your seats? And I showed him my seats, and he had, he had tickets for Bruce was in Boston, then going away, and then coming back to Boston a couple weeks later, and they were right in the same section. So we, he just traded tickets with me, which I thought was the sweetest, kindest thing. So two weeks after this, debacle we go to springsteen and just try to have some therapy around losing our baby it was it was sad so now the school year starts Oh, well, the other person i told was clint cogswell he was my principal at walker school at the time where i was teaching and he has had a heart transplant and he understood all the ins and outs of what it's like to live with a bad heart and he was so tender and kind you know and nobody wants to tell you what to do i don't think you have the baby i think you have the baby you know and, and he just pointed out that it's the baby who's sick not the parents, not the doctors, not the nurses. They all go home and you'll stay with that baby, you know, if, if he can survive. Again, there was so much to think about. So we try to put our lives back together. We, we get really helpful, healthy. We decide we're going to lose weight. We start eating really well. I'm just fixated on being as healthy as I can be. And I just dive into school and coaching. And It was, it was easy for me to put it in a box and forget about it. Not that I forgot about it. I dreamed about baby Gordy all the time. But at that time for me, it was such an insular experience. It was just me and Kenny. It was really no one else. No one, none of his family knew, he told nobody. Uh, his brother Gordy, his brother Gordy. Did. But what a lot of people didn't know was that we named that baby Gordon Thomas. So Gordon after Kenny's dad and Thomas after my biological dad. And so life went on. I pieced my life back together. I remember going for my physical with, my, with Dr. Akey, my pulmonary doctor. And he, you know, got all the medical reports and records and he had, he had the autopsy report there. They didn't send it to me. They sent it to him, which I, I'm not, I guess they sent it to the hospital and it goes to your primary care. At any rate, he had this. So we sat and read it together and it was unbelievable. It was, it just talked all about all the multiple things wrong with that heart and that there were a couple of other systematic things inside of his little body that weren't right. And and they thought it was because of the defect in the heart and he likely wouldn't have, survived nine months of pregnancy, but definitely would not have diagnosed as inconsistent with life outside of the universe. And so, and so the immense relief I felt that I hadn't you know, made the wrong decision was huge. And, and so I could sort of take a big collective sigh of relief. And so life went on. I mean, then it was the year 2000, you know, life was calming down. We were super healthy. I was running well. And I went off to Princeton camp and it was the summer of 2000 we had this amazing weekend. We timed a road race in, on the vineyard and just had this amazing time and drove home and I had to leave right away for Princeton camp. And we, you know, we had had such an, an emotional tumultuous first year and spending time apart was really difficult. The first year I went to Princeton camp, first summer we were together. We called, he was in Pennsylvania. We called the phone all the time. The summer that I lost baby Gordy, didn't, I didn't go to Princeton camp because I was you know, in the midst of all that. And then, so this summer, the summer of 2000 was actually our third summer, our third August there together. And I went off to Princeton camp and it was, it was during that time that we conceived Gracie and we had sort of decided that we, even though, you know, he was just weeks away from his divorce being final and, you know, baby Gordy had just put in my mind, keep in mind, I was never going to have kids in all of our conversations around being together. He had three kids. I, we don't need to have kids. That's not, not looking to be a family woman. I really, really, truly wasn't. And And it wasn't until I had that experience and, and, you know, driving in my car one day down to. Where like Shaw's is, and I was running errands and I felt this weird blurp in my stomach. And it was, and it was my first time feeling the baby move. Having all these experiences, I realized I have to have a baby. Oh my gosh, I have to have a baby. And so we decided, all right, well, let's let's make a baby then. And so we did, and I'm incredibly lucky. <laughs> One try, and here she was. So I remember that whole process. So of course, immediately I'm pregnant, and this time we know right away so I can immediately make sure I'm doing all the things that I think caused baby Gordy's heart to be wrong. And, I, and because it was considered high risk because I had lost a child, I had millions of appointments, which I did with baby Jack. And so the thing I remember the most about all of those tests were, was the amniocentesis. I had it at Hanover this time with, with Emily. Kenny and I were just racked with anxiety because we're gonna see a heart. I have my little belly now. And again, I haven't told anybody. <laughs> Because we we just wanted to wait until we knew she was okay. I think I told Ember Smith, and that's why I named Gracie after Ember. I told her, and she was just so excited. She was she was a senior at that time in high school. Look at me telling my, my senior runner that I'm gonna have a baby. We're there and she's looking at the heart, and Kenny said, Do you see the heart? And she said, Yep, come take a look at it. This is the tech, and there it is, four little clovers. It's a little four-leaf clover, that little baby heart there. And Kenny just sobbed, began to sob. And we were so relieved, just so utterly relieved that this baby was okay. And remember we went home and saw the movie, Remember the Titans. I believe it was Remember the Titans. It might've been the life of David Gale. So both Gracie and Molly, after the ultrasounds, we went to the movies. <laughs> it was like our little date. Once we knew we had a healthy baby. And one of them was Remember the Titans and the other was the life of David Gale. At any rate, we went to the movies and we had this wonderful time. And so went my pregnancy with Gracie. So from the time I found out I was pregnant, about late September, Kenny's divorce became final. And then October 13th. Friday, full moon, 85 degree day. Kenny and I got married. I had my cross country team as all the bridesmaids. It was down in Eagle Square. We had thought we'd get married at Beaver Meadow Golf Course and it didn't work out. They had double booked. They have a nice clubhouse there and Kenny loves to golf. So we went out for dinner and we're sitting at the, it's Tandy's now, but it was a different restaurant back then. And we're sitting at the bar and Kenny's having a beer and dinner and I'm having dinner and we're talking about what do we do now? And the bartender on the restaurant, he said, hey, come here, I have a place for you. And it was amazing, it was that atrium that's behind the restaurant. And so the restaurant catered the wedding, you know, you open the doors and you come right in. We set it up with tables and Christmas lights and goldfish bowls for centerpieces and balloons and, and had this wonderful, wonderful wedding in Eagle Square in the atrium there. It was a beautiful night, so we had the doors open, people were in and out all night long. It was a blast. And then I grew Gracie, I spent the next few months, you know, growing Gracie and getting ready. I remember coaching indoor track and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Everyone getting a big kick out of me being so huge. And Gracie came along. Her due date was May 4th. April 23rd was a Monday and I fell asleep on the front porch. <laughs> I woke up in a little drool, a big giant belly. We had gotten new wicker furniture and I was all nasty. It was April vacation week, so there was no school. And the mail was in the mailbox, which means that mailman had come up onto the porch and see this whale of a pregnant woman drooling on the wicker furniture. It was funny. It made me laugh at the time. And Kenny and I were watching Boston Public, this TV show I loved. And I felt a twinge and went into labor my water broke at home Had a track meet the next day. So I had to quickly call my assistant Lynn to, I'll leave everything on the porch. It's all in my car. I'll leave it on the porch and put everything out for her, set up the lineup and off we went. So we got to the hospital, you know, at about 10 o'clock. I had this wonderful nurse, Danielle. I had a doctor whose name is going to escape me now because that's how it works. (laughs) He was terrific. He worked at Concord OBGYN and I can see his face and I will not remember his name see, I should write these things down So he came in and delivered Gracie and it was that labor for me was very very opposite from Molly so that so with Gracie I got sick. One of my best memories is I'm, I'm in triage and I'm waiting and I start to feel really nauseous like I'm gonna throw up and I said Kenny, I think I'm gonna throw up and I turn around I'm like here it comes and Kenny in the meantime I've got nothing but in the bucket I just went Ugh. so if it was in slow motion, you would have seen me turning around with the vomit coming out, and Kenny coming up with the bucket and he caught puke. It was amazing. And I puked and puked and puked. Ate a popsicle, I got sick. It was, it was just crazy. And I, another big thing, and I would tell this in my health class when I was talking about childbirth, is you know, you have women have a mucus plug in their cervix, and the mucus keeps germs out, keeps things out. So the baby, the amniotic sac with the baby in it is safe and it just plugs things up. And I didn't know I had that. So I was puking and puking in the sink, and I heard a splat, and I looked down on the floor. I think I like dropped the baby. It was this giant fluorescent green booger. Like, all this, like, was in front of me? I saw like, oh, that's your mucus La So I went into labor a little before eight, and Gracie was born at 3.02 a.m. on April 24th. Ember Grace stands off. Again, it was just, you know, not a very difficult thing. So I'll stop here because baby Gordy, you know, it was just... He started, if it weren't for baby Gordy, I really don't believe there would be a Gracie. First of all, if he'd been healthy, I wouldn't have had a baby. I would have Gordy, you know? So, oh, so what's better, Gracie or Gordy? Well, neither is better. Quite frankly, a baby is a baby is a baby. But that whole process brought me Gracie who has been a miraculously amazing addition to my life. She is supposed to be here. When I can step back from the personal piece of all this tragedy, I see that each of my babies has played an important purpose their own existence, and in the existence of those that follow them. In really truly retracing my thousand tiny steps, Gordon Thomas Banzoff, August 1999 is the beginning, the true beginning of the end of Molly, because there really wouldn't have been a Molly if there hadn't been a Gracie. Well, let me rephrase that. There wouldn't have been a Jack if there hadn't been a Molly. And there wouldn't have been a Molly if it weren't for Gracie, and there wouldn't have been a Gracie if it weren't for baby Gordy. So for those moms listening that have lost, had stillbirth, have lost a child miscarriage, early miscarriage, late miscarriage, over and over again miscarriage, I'm sorry. And I know if, if 21 years later, you can still wreck me, then or 22 years later actually now, then quite clearly it's it's not a small thing. And I appreciate those mothers that are willing to share. I appreciate it. Helps everybody to hear stories like this. And for those of you that can't share, don't. It's not your job to fix other people. But those of us who can should because it provides comfort and cushion and love and support for women that have lost babies. So I realized season two is all about Molly, and episode two of season two is all about Gordy. So what I will try to do during the course of this podcast is get through this season rather. It's get through cleaning my attic and find all those keepsakes of Gordy because if I'm going to have all my children up here, Molly and Gracie and Jack, then I should have Gordy up here as well because he's as much my child as any of them are. So back to Molly's Purpose, making people happy. <laughs> I want to thank Jonathan Starks and all the other people that messaged me on Facebook to where I can get my iPhone fixed. <laughs> the screen's broken and I didn't want to have to send it away. Y'all made me happy today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for reaching out. Missy reached out. Sherry reached out. A bunch of people. I don't have my phone in front of me, so I can't tell you who, but just answering a post on Facebook with a suggestion on where to get an iPhone fixed brought some happiness in my life today. And the polite people on the phone, the guy at the iPhone store, terrific, super friendly. And the people up at Batteries and Bulbs on Long Road, Concord, shout out. were super friendly and helpful as well. Sometimes that's all you have to do, <laughs> answer a text or a post. Thank you for listening. Please keep tuning in and sharing the podcast. Please continue to give me suggestions and advice on what you hear. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.